Welcome to If You've Come This Far, the podcast that uh, Sean Emerson and I get to do every couple of weeks uh, where we get interesting, smart people to come talk to us about uh, about life and how to make more of it. Uh, we have, uh, doc, I think, Dr. Saeed Hill, yes? Correct. Uh, professor at Northwestern University, uh, more interesting thing. It's a, well, say it's interesting all the way around and a great dude. Um, but I think what attracted us first to say was a couple of these programs that he runs outside of what he teaches. So Sean, you brought him along, um, since you're the, you know, the lead uh, chief development person, uh, uh, or business development, Tell us about Saeed. Is that a formal role that I that I've accepted? Well, I mean, you're not going to get paid more for it, so right. don't, yeah. don't get ahead of yourself. Um, talk about cool guys, Dr. Saeed Hill. Um, have we had anybody on who's talked more about uh, joy and love than Saeed Hill? Uh, I mean, not only do you talk about I, it, but you could feel it. I, like you could, right? I, I want to be more in his presence. No shit, really. It, it's uh, um, I caught I caught it. You talk about us being old. I, t- you, I, you know, Saeed's probably in his thirties, and I feel like he's a kid. But I'm feeding off his energy. His energy is so good. So, uh, Dr. Saeed Hill is um, the assistant director of prevention and masculine engagement at CARE, the Center for Awareness, Response, and Education at Northwestern University. He runs a program called NU Men, which is um, Northwestern Men, and and really, I think the essence of it is he's he's um, He's holding programming groups with men at Northwestern um, to try to teach them that it's okay to, you know, um, be who they want to be. A lot of self-awareness, a lot of joy, a lot of love, um, uh, as well as he's very focused on some serious things around um, uh, sexual violence and what he calls restrictive masculinity. Um, Just, I mean, just a smart, engaging, um, intentional man. And uh, it was just a it was just a really enjoyable conversation. It's it's funny, like we've had recently um, some folks on the show who have been around the block for many more decades than Saeed and, and had really accomplished careers. And, and here is a young guy. But I, I, as I was talking to Saeed, I'm like, uh, Saeed is going to make a mark. This oh. dude is going to make a mark on this world. Um, and, and he has already, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think. Um... I think our, our listeners will will learn a lot. I think they'll be I think it'll be entertaining to listen to to this man. And um, you know, if you're like us, you're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna keep close to what he's doing. No, no doubt, no doubt. All right, so here we go with Saeed. So so let me start, Chris. So I don't even think I told you. So um I met Sa- Saeed. We were in a um I attend, I attend this um, regular, I'll call it a circle, restorative justice circle. I've been doing it for two years on Thursdays at 11 central time. And um, many, many days, I'm the only guy in the room. And and there's a lot of women in the room. And Saeed showed up one day and I'm like, oh, this, and he was talking. I'm like, this guy is interesting. So I, I <laughs> checked him out. I, I, I Googled him. And I'm like, oh, he's at Northwestern and he's doing all this masculinity shit. I'm like, we we got to hook up. 
So, um, so he and I had an interesting, I'll call, I thought it was interesting, interesting conversation. <laughs> conversation. He's probably like, oh yeah, who's this guy? It's, it's very and, interesting. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm like, you got to come on and talk to me and Chris. Cause, cause there's a lot about what you're doing, um, that I think will be interesting to our listeners. Um, how was it for a kid from Queens to go to Missouri, University of Missouri, Kansas City? Uh, how was that transition? Yeah, um, you know, I so I was in um, in Queens, you know, probably what eight years, nine years of my life. The first like eight nine years growing up around a lot of folk uh, in my neighborhood, like my street, my block. It was a lot of my family members lived there. My aunts and uncles all lived on the same street or around the corner. Um, there, what they say about the melting pot is real in Queens. So everyone is, you know, knows where you're from, country rise, right? So my family is Guyanese. Um, they're from Guyana. So Indo-Caribbean folks. And yeah, so it's just a, a very much of a melting pot, uh, you know, and uh, everyone, a lot of people look like me there. And so, mm-hmm. My dad, who's an engineer, got transferred actually to a suburb of Atlanta, actually. And when I first uh, started going there, that was my first encounter with, oh, I'm very different um, Mm -hmm. here um, as one of the only uh, people of color there, um, one of the only Muslim folks there. My family's Muslim at the time. And so that was very different. And then going from there to Missouri, I mean, in in Kansas, we actually moved to Kansas um, after that. And that's where the Missouri connection comes in. So I think what I noticed the most were a lot of like racial differences, but a lot of like just cultural differences and, and, and knowledge of things. And I guess the thing that's come out of it maybe the most, aside from like a deep, deep love and gratitude for smoking meat now um, in the Midwest. I mean, that's certainly, I'm very Midwestern now when it comes to that. I I like my smokers. But um, aside from that, I think it really was just noticing um, just how different so many people are. And I think I've always just had an interest in people's backgrounds and stories, which is really one of the reasons I became a psychologist. So Yeah. um, yeah, so it was difficult. It was really difficult around a lot of you know, these social justice oriented sort of things that I didn't even have words for at the time, but I just knew I felt very different. And so that really impacted how I I think my identity developed over time, for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Saeed, at what point did you did you decide to become a psychologist? Um, I officially was my, uh, I guess, the end of like the second semester of my first year of college. So I went to Truman State University in in Kirksville, Missouri, so very rural part of Missouri. And um, I started out as being pre-med because I think there was a lot of pressure socially around being you know, Indian and and, and medicine. And, um, you know, I had a grandmother that uh, suffered from arthritis. And so I thought about being an orthopedic surgeon, but my family was very encouraging of that, right? You know, Indian immigrants, it's like very much like that's, you know, law, maybe you do engineering, medicine, it's these like specific things. Um, and then I was terrible <laughs> at biology. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I ended up not doing really well. I, I have a good story. Maybe it's a little too long of a story to get into here this second, but so I actually um, was doing pretty poorly in an intro bio course. It was like bio 102 or something like that. And um, I was just not doing very well. I didn't understand some of these biological concepts, all these things and, and my identity. I'm feeling so much pressure. You know, I'm also the only boy, you know, um, I'm also the youngest 
um, of the first, uh, you know, the first grandchildren, you know, in the family, it's a very big family. So there's a lot of pressure on me. And um, I just wasn't doing well. So I decided, you know, hey, I'm still gonna be a surgeon, though, I'm gonna really study hard for this last test that we have. And it's going to prove that I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. So I studied for weeks for it. Um, and I took the test and I flew through it, felt really great about it. And I actually talk about masculinity stuff. I went up to my professor when I finished it and I handed it to him. I was like, I dominated your test, <laughs> totally dominated it. And um, he was like, really? You did? I was like, I absolutely did. So he was really excited for that. He's like, well, looking forward to it. So a couple of weeks go by and we get the grades back and it's out of 103 because of extra credit. So he puts the range of scores on the board and, and the lowest score is a 40% out of 103. You're like, oh, that is terrible. That sucks. And then there's 103. So you're like, all right, I'm in this range somewhere, you know? And so hopefully if I got a B, I'm like, all right, the surgery, the surgeon's still happening as if maybe that's what the benchmark is for surgeons. I don't know. So I was like, I need this B to justify my existence more than anything. I mean, it felt like a lot of pressure. Um, I got the test back um, and I'll give y'all one guess who got that 40%. <laughs> so... I don't know what happened, um, but I flipped through the test, red marks everywhere. Um, and in the middle class, I handed him the test and I was like, you know, you'll never see me in this class again. Um, and I left immediately, went to a computer that was nearby, changed my major to psychology and uh, political science. I wanted to study political science as well. And um, that's kind of like the start of it. And I think the psychologist part really came in because honestly, I still wanted, I mean, it was still important, I think, to the family that I was a doctor in some context. And I think there was still that pressure. So I played around with psychiatry, but it was still medicine. It was still going to be the same issue, right? Um, but I did some soul searching, honestly, as, you know, I was, what, 17, actually, that year. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't me. This isn't what I enjoy. I enjoy people. I enjoy relationships. I enjoy mm -hmm. talking to folks. Um, and I enjoy politics and social justice, you know, sorts of sorts of things. And why don't we combine those things? And yeah, it just kind of took off from there. So that's kind of the origin story. Yeah. Sorry, quick follow up. And you might have effectively answered this. Um, before you decided to become a psychologist, had you ever been on the consumer end of psychology? Like mar like with marketing? Is that what you mean? No. Like had you ever uh, 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 had a done any oh, therapy? therapy and stuff? Like Absolutely not. No. I mean, um, growing up in the family I grew up with, I mean, it, it sounds very stereotypical, but there really wasn't anyone talking about mental health in that way. And sometimes it was, you know, um, it's it might be more it's easier to think of it as like a physical ailment than a mental one because of the stigma around that. Also being male and, a, you know, and a dad who's an engineer who I love my dad. My dad's a really loving man, but he knows how to show love in the ways that he knows how to, mm. you know? And um, so I didn't have a whole lot of models for what that looked like. So no, I didn't have, I didn't encounter that at all, but I, I always knew on some level that people had stories to tell and things were impacting people. Things were impacting me on a day-to-day -day basis and I didn't know what to do with it. And I think that over time, I just started to put language to, I took an intro to psych course with a professor named Sal Costa in, uh, in, in Truman, who kind of took me under his wing as like, he took an interest in me and uh, I would TA for him. And it just through there, I was like, I really enjoy helping people and talking mm -hmm. to folks. And mm -hmm. um, this is a route to, to maybe do that. And so that's kind of where that came from. Yeah. 
there might have been a few folks that would need a therapist after the 40, but it's good to know that you were, <laughs> you, were you you were able to power through. You know, um, we did we weren't calling it resilience necessarily back then, but I think that grit, is part of it. Yeah. Grit. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the Dr. grit. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I'm curious, did you say that um you used to be Muslim? Or the family yeah. is Muslim? Yeah, so part of my family, um, a large portion of my family are uh, Muslim, Indian Muslims. Um, and then there's another, uh, a, a smaller side of my family, though, but still a significant part, portion of my family that are Catholic, um, mm-hmm. coming from like a Dutch Catholic background. Okay. Um, my father's Methodist, was raised as a Methodist. So there's like an, a mix of religions in my family, but I was sort of raised to appreciate and raised as both Muslim mm-hmm. and Catholic for for a long time before we moved to Georgia and you know there was a lack of mosques you know in the suburbs of Atlanta um there was you know after 9-11 especially there's a lot of socio-political stuff right with the implications for that and even before that it was just you know um and then my grandmother uh ended up passing away who was Dutch Catholic and I think there was just a a number of things that contributed to my mother really feeling like we should convert full fully to Catholicism okay. um, from from Islam. But I still it's still like a significant part of my family and many of my aunts and close people uh, in my life are Muslim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to get to your work. And, yeah. And I'd like to, I'd like to start out this way because it strikes me as something that it just caught me. So your title um, at the Center for Awareness, Response, and Education is Assistant Director of Prevention and Masculine Engagement. Yes. And 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 what 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 I what kind of was conflicting for me is prevention and engagement. Mm-hmm. So, so they seem at odds a little bit to me. Mm-hmm. And and may, and maybe not. Maybe they go together. Maybe you're going to tell me why they go together. Yeah. Um, but maybe use that as a start for telling us about about your work that you're doing at Northwestern? For sure. Um, if I can ask you a question, I'm curious sure. about what the uh, what the uh, conflict between the two is as you see it. I'm curious. So so I see engagement as, as um, a very uh, positive energy. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I see prevention more as a, uh, a negative energy, I guess, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, sure. And and so that's where, that's where the conflict comes in, I think yeah. for me. Yeah, for sure. No, I I can appreciate that. I feel like um, for me, the prevention piece, I feel like for me, prevention is an act of love. I I think the way it comes together with the prevention and the engagement piece is especially around masculinity work is um, maybe, you know, first of all, with the the men and and masculine folks that I work with is, um, you know, really trying to ground them in understanding some of the rigidity around masculinity, right? There's so much rigid messages around what it means to be male or masculine or a man, um, the acts, the behaviors, the attitudes you should have. And if you don't have them, um, then you might be ostracized or you might be in conflict internally, you know, made fun of all sorts of things or even have Mm -hmm. violence perpetrated against you. And I think that that's where um, the prevention piece comes in is because when I work with my men and masculine folks around prevention efforts, it really starts with uh, an in-depth look at yourself, um, really deconstructing what you've learned Mm -hmm. about your identity, your masculine identity, and realizing that a lot of it is so rooted in power dynamics and, and and a desire um, and maybe need and an obsession at times with 
what is power. And often, um, if that isn't really scrutinized, we can use power in ways that exploit people, right? That's where violence comes in and mm -hmm. harassment and, and, and abuse and all sorts of things. And so for me, that prevention piece starts internally, and it is a means of creating a more liberated community for everybody, right? And so I think that that's where the prevention efforts really come into play is like, if I can use this knowledge, you know, um, if I can do some of this internal work, this knowledge, learn about policy, procedure, all sorts of stuff, and prevent other people from feeling powerless or help empower mm. other people mm. and live a more liberated life when people are harmed, you know, whether it be sexual violence, relationship violence, stalking, harassment, abuse, any of those things, it does strip power from folks and it strips an ability to live fully and fully human mm -hmm. at times, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, mm -hmm. or embrace like joy, happy, all sorts of stuff. And so um, I think for those people that are perpetrating that, it, it's also a similar case that they're also not liberated from some of these things. And so I, I tie those things together um, in, in a lot of ways. I think they do go hand in hand. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. actually it does. Yeah. So your and your bio, it, it mentions prevention of violence after it lists your title. Was it an intentional decision to not name violence as at least one of the things that you're the assistant director of preventing? Yeah, you know, I I will say that when I first started, um, you know, at Northwestern, the official title was assistant director of. Uh, men's engagement or prevention in men's engagement. And, um, you know, I think, you know, in terms of like the intentionality of like the word violence and that sort of thing, I think there is intention in like, if you put that word there, first of all, I mean, that could be, you could yeah. react to that in a number of ways, right? But especially yeah. for a survivor or someone who's a victim or, or somebody who's embraced or trying to interact with you, I think that word does have implications to it. And it can mm -hmm. be potentially harmful or triggering for folks or activating, you know, in some way. And I think, you know, that prevention piece sort of leads with, um, you know, we're trying to prevent a number of things and you would probably have to dig a little deeper to kind of see like, what are we trying to prevent and that sort of thing. Um, but you would get it from like the department that I'm in. Um, and then the, the masculinity piece too, because honestly, like if you tie that word violence to men in that way too. I think that, you know, next to each other or masculinity and violence next to each other, I think that also can unintentionally um, not push people away as opposed yeah. to draw people towards you, right? And so we're hoping to to draw more people uh, toward us uh, yeah. in ways. So there's a lot of intentionality that went in, especially changing it from men's engagement to masculine engagement, because we also wanted to, I personally wanted to, expand the tenant umbrella of like masculinities like what are we looking and examining and mm -hmm. not and, and be more inclusive to what that group is that i'm trying to engage in. yeah so and so maybe uh just for for the listeners talk about and here we are dissecting dissecting your uh title mm -hmm. but only from the standpoint of trying to understand what you do but can you talk about it in terms of of the care department and what what you what the organization's or department's mission is yeah, so care um, is about, you know, uh, preventing, uh, you know, violence, but we we specifically work with students around um, sexual violence, relationship violence, and stalking. So everyone in our staff are confidential resources for students who have experienced those things either directly or indirectly, 
right? So um, we might be supporting a student who's supporting someone else because of mm-hmm. things like vicarious trauma and those sorts of things. So it's important for folks to know we're just a violence prevention center with confidential, you know, folks in there. Um, it just so happens that all of us too have therapy backgrounds as well. Although yeah. what we do isn't technically considered therapy, we're more support and referral to therapists. We are sort of the first, uh, in many instances, the first um, stop for students who have experienced those things to get um, to process it, you know, to get have a space to decompress maybe and process um, and then be connected. And so that's like sort of that piece of it. But we do enough. I mean, we do. <laughs> I talked to my, uh, you know, colleagues about all that. We do a lot of things. So we're involved mm-hmm. with comprehensive sex education, for instance. So things like thinking about things like, um, you know, um, you know, birth control methods, healthy relationships. Um, you know, um, LGBTQ issues, like when it comes to our relationships and relationship violence and things like that too. You know, we do an an advocacy and support for our survivors. So it's a lot of different things we'll do. We'll also serve as confidential um, advocates for our survivors as well. So if a student say has filed a Title IX, um, you know, complaint and there's an investigation going on, we'll be in those rooms with those students to help them navigate an Office of Equity or a Title IX process, you know, mm-hmm. to help them through that. So we'll do that as well. And then we have an education and outreach piece right. that I'm right. mostly doing myself, which is a lot of workshops, curriculum development, supervision of students doing the work as well. So it's a number of things um, that we do, but we are, you know, we we consider ourselves in the liberation business because it's just so much of uh, so much of violence and trauma really strips um, our students or impacts our students in a way that. Uh, denies them access to resources and all sorts of stuff. So we want to address that. This episode of If You've Come This Far, episode number 20, by the way, is brought to you by our friends at Half Acre Beer Company, makers of Daisy Cutter Pale Ale and many other fine ales and lagers. Visit them at their brewery located at 2050 West Balmoral Avenue in the beautiful Bowmanville neighborhood. Is the work that you all are doing at Northwestern um, fairly common across the universities in the country these days? Um, I think most, I, well, I say that I, I wouldn't really have an idea of that, but like, you know, at least larger institutions I know um, have a, a violence prevention center of some kind, you uh-huh. know, um, or it can at least address that. I mean, especially because of Title IX policy over the years, you know, that's become a very important piece of a university to have that uh, resource um, uh, to them. So a lot of resources or a lot of um, institutions I'll work with or partner with or know of will have a department that might be similar to mine um, or even name the same thing. I think UC Berkeley has a prevention center called um, uh, the Path to Care or something of that nature, right? So um, similar wording um, in that way. What I will say is a little different is not every institution and it's a little much smaller, significantly smaller amount will have a position like mine specifically um, engaging men or masculine folks around the work. Yeah, right. yeah, I, I haven't seen. I mean, I so, go ahead, Chris. Did you? Oh want no, to no, keep going, Sean. Keep going. No, I, um, I in 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 the research that I've done, I haven't seen a lot of universities that have men focused programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, in fact, there's there's dialogue in the research that I saw that where, you know, a lot of the attitude is, why do we ne- need men focused programs? Um, mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I saw something in Oregon. It looked like they had an uh, organization that's focused on it, maybe uh, Vermont as well. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about the NU men or your Northwestern uh, men's program. Um, because I, I think, you know, in, in looking at it from my perspective, um, talk about prevention. What you're mm -hmm. trying to do is engage men in, in, in a way that looks inside um, and that maybe prevents them from violence, one thing, but from getting caught up in um, what it means to be a stereotypical man. Absolutely, um, and then yeah. and try and try to talk about freedoms and openness and and being comfortable with who you are. I mean, you'll you'll tell us more about it, but I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's a. I appreciate that. It's, it is so needed, and um, so you know the the there's two main pieces that I manage around the masculinity work, and one is. Um, curriculum that I, in a program that I provide. And the other one is a supervision, the supervision of a student group. So I'll start with them. So I supervise a student group at Northwestern called MARS, which stands for Masculinity, Allyship, Reflection, and Solidarity. The origin of the name MARS, um, as the acronym MARS, it used to stand for Men Against Rape and Sexual Assault. Mm. Um, and um, one of my first tasks uh, in taking over it was to change that name um, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I wanted to be a more masculinity based group, not a men's group specifically. And we wanted to be for something, not against or, you know, for something, not against something. Um, and, you know, being against rape and sexual assault uh, is a low bar. Right. So we wanted to. Um, you know, stand for something. And so I, I worked with, um, so they're all students, they're all undergraduate students that I supervise. Um, it's a group usually that's anywhere between, on a low side at times it could be 10, but on a higher size, like 20, you know, folks mm -hmm. um, who um, go through an application process who may just be interested in learning more about masculinity work and prevention. Um, they'll go through an interview process and I help supervise them and teach them uh, curriculum around uh, how to engage other men and masculine folks um, in the prevention of violence. So we start mm -hmm. with, um, we have weekly meetings, um, we have an exec team, an exec board that gets elected um, and chosen. And so uh, basically it's like weekly programming from different partners around the university or around the, uh, you know, at times around the country, you know, now with Zoom and everything, but mm -hmm. um, around the community um, who maybe have touch points uh, with us in some variety or, or important stakeholders. So, you know, other prevention, uh, you know, institutions, nonprofits, um, you know, stuff like that, that we might be working with, um, or other departments um, at Northwestern, like social justice education, for mm -hmm. instance, you know, so just really trying to tie how those sorts of programs, departments, whatever it may be, um, impact the work that we're doing. Um, and so I train them in how to deliver a specific curriculum that they go up around the university to deliver. Um, and so usually they'll be in more predominantly masculine spaces. So thinking about like fraternities, for instance, mm -hmm. um, some like uh, men's athletics teams, right? So they might be in those spaces delivering information about like an intro to masculinity, sort of like an, a masculinity 101 about masculine identity development and how it influences uh, prevention efforts um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Sorry, real quick. Say so you're mostly teaching the teachers. 
Yeah. So this, the, the students, um, I are, it's a peer, uh, it's a peer education group, right? So when um, they are recruited and they come into Mars, then I will train them on how to deliver that education specifically. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how do you find that the young men are, are responding to an intro in, you know, an intro intro to masculinity uh, program? Yeah. Um, I at least my it, it maybe depends on the audience at Northwestern specifically, like it might be a little different at Northwestern versus, you know, outside of Northwestern, you know, in the community or by age. Sometimes that matters, which we can talk about if we want to get into that. But mm-hmm. um, at Northwestern, uh, for the most part, the students have been very receptive to it overall. And mm-hmm. I think there is a deep curiosity about talking about that piece of their identity. I think folks. Yeah especially around masculinity, there's a lot of conversations about that right now going on um, in a lot of different ways, you know, and especially this use of like the term toxic masculinity, for instance, mm-hmm. right? And and people are learning about that term and wondering what to do with that and how, and if you're a man growing up or, you know, someone who's more, you know, masculine aligned, right? Uh, what does that mean for you? You know, this, this word, this term, and what does it mean for your identity? Um, and so there's a lot of curiosity for, um, for our students. And so when I'm delivering some of this information to them or training others to do it, you can tell that the light bulb goes off because inevitably, I think the, the number one question I get from folks, I, I do a lot of consulting work on the side where I help um, institutions develop masculinity programs um, mm-hmm. and programming. And so the number one question I get is, well, how do you get them to show up? You know, how do you actually get them there? And it is the most difficult question. And it's it's, it's not easy at all. Um, there's no easy answer to it or right answer to it. I do think providing food is <laughs> one way, um, you know, food. Smoked and get some, meat. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah, smokers. Smoke yeah, 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 some smokers. Yeah. We got a, a good barbecue <laughs> spot uh, right, right. here in Evanson. We got some good barbecue spots here. Smoke is really good in Evanson. <laughs> shout out to Smoke Barbecue. But um you know, um, but yeah, you know, maybe food gets them there, but I think you see the light bulb go off when folks are starting to learn more because it may be the first time at all folks are really engaging with that piece of their identity, right? Mm-hmm. And I look at it maybe in akin to if you think about like deconstructing whiteness, right? With thinking about racially, how some of these identities that might be considered maybe, uh, uh, you know, privileged in some ways, right? Or um, having uh, centered in a lot of power dynamics or things like that, you don't necessarily see a lot of programming directed at that to understand that identity and how that has impact in ways. And Mm so um, a lot of our students just show very curiously. I will also say, as an aside to that, that I think is the main focus of what I do in a lot of ways is I don't actually use the term toxic masculinity. I know you, um, it's you not, told me that. Yeah, yeah when we first it's, met. It, it's not a term that I I necessarily resonate with um, for a number of reasons. Um, but one in particular is that it can be, I mean, to a certain degree, a lot of the folks, it can be very disconnecting for folks. So mm-hmm. if you're talking about toxic masculinity, it's hard to get men or masculine folks to engage with that because it's been overtaken so much in pop culture and, and really a, a misunderstanding or application of it even, and what is it or what does it look like? It's so ambiguous. Um, and so it's disconnecting for a lot of folks and kind of drives folks away from doing the work. Um, and so part of it is semantic but that has impact, right? Um, the other thing is, is like, I don't find masculinity to be inherently toxic, but I mm-hmm. do find that if, uh, when you box in masculinity and you you kind of define it really rigidly, and there's a lot of pressure to adhere to that, and it's rooted in power and those sorts of things, 
that's when we get in a lot of issues. It's almost like if you take all those stereotypes about it, turn it up to a hundred, and that's what you can only be all the time. I think that's where we get into a lot of issues. Yeah. Um, and so I actually use the term restrictive masculinity right. um, because I describe masculinity a lot as anxiety for a lot of folks, mm-hmm. how to perform mm-hmm. it, how to be it, how to how to do it. What does it look like? Um, and it, it feels like I can't apologize to any claustrophobic people out there. I'll give that activation warning. But, you know, it is like you're kind of trapped in a box, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit. And if you were to be trapped into a box, you would feel a lot of anxiety. But also, if you didn't have the tools to get out, you might have a lot of fear. You might have a lot of, you know, um, you know, anxiety, fear, maybe depression, you know, all sorts of stuff. And yeah. so what we're trying to provide is like maybe some tools to unrestrict because that pressure you feel, what we're trying to say is restrictive masculinity, let's unrestrict it by providing you more options for what this looks like um, and not and, and affirm you in exploring those options. So masculinity doesn't have to look one way. So we're not mm-hmm. saying like, if you wanna be a big time like stereotype, let's say like gym bro, who's like really like in a working out and hey, like this is who I am, whatever, maybe crushing beers. I don't know, all the stereotypes, whatever stereotypes, smoking meat, I don't know. Um, all those <laughs> stereotypes, right? Like if that's your vibe, no one's saying that that's like a negative vibe. What we're saying right. is like, can we provide you some other looks at what this could look like to provide you some range? Because inevitably you're not going to be able to be that all at all times. When society is telling you should be, you don't have to be. So let's unrestrict that. Let's take some pressure, ease some of that pressure. And that's why I started using restrictive masculinity more because it feels like it's more of restriction and it's adhering to masculinity is not inherently toxic. So that's why I use that. And I think my students, to tie it back to that, students and other people really resonate more with that kind of messaging and helps bring more people to the table Mm -hmm. and and, and the light bulb goes off a little bit more. Yeah. And I would think in, in, in telling that story, uh, and in explaining to a man how they can be, you know, unrestrict themselves, um, you have to do a lot with self-awareness and self-confidence. I mean, to be able to live outside of the box, right? Because, because, because that, that restriction arguably is the conditioning that's been set up by society at some level. Right. And does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does. It does take a lot. Um, and, and, and honestly, that's where it comes in. I mean, it's so systems oriented, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the resources I might provide are from, um, say, intersectional feminist scholars, right? So for example, one of the books I provide, the first book that I'll provide to my students in Mars, for instance, is um, uh, A Will to Change by Bell yeah. Hooks. And yeah. so that book is a really good foundational piece about like power and masculinity and love and how that Mm -hmm. all comes together in ways. And um, what it really gets at a lot too, is that we need, it it can't just be, we need models for what it looks like. Right. And so a lot of it is, you know, across age, like, can we, start having more models for how this looks. So um, I'd like to be, uh, you know, I try to be a model for it, you know, by being more vulnerable in conversations or talking about, um, you know, issues that are important to folks, like, you know, really talking about issues that I don't necessarily have to care about, right? Because of my identity and my privileges and stuff like that. So, you know, for example, like I went to work in reproductive justice for a while, you know, um, for three, four years, you know, and, 
I mean, it was just like really eye-opening to understand a little bit more about like the identity of others who are different than me and what they're going through with reproductive justice and rights and, and the stripping of that and mm-hmm. more people feeling less powerful and powerless and 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 how, how can we support those folks, right? So I think it really starts with like what the modeling looks like. And then for folks who maybe don't identify as male or masculine, it's like, can you also just affirm people as they explore or try to unrestrict? Because right. often we might try to put people back in that box, right? For right. example, I'll give a quick example of, I was once told by a, a family member when I was being, I was young, I was being really, uh, was crying, I was emotional. And I was once told by a family member that I was really my mother's child, right? Mm-hmm. Because of how mm-hmm. much I was crying and stuff. Mm-hmm. As a kid, what do you, you know, how are you taking that in? What does that mean, right? And couple that with, you know, a dad who I know is loving, but also I don't see him cry ever, you know, yeah. and I don't really see him talk about emotions ever. So what am I starting to think and feel, right? Well, how's that going? And so there's unintentional ways we also like keep folks or develop the box for some kids and, yeah. and push them in it across ages, right? Not yeah. just for children. So it's one of those things where can we, this is really about helping liberate everybody from the system that could be rigid patriarchy and all this other stuff, right? It's like, let's just grant affirmation and permission to explore and be different, you know? Like it doesn't always have to be a conversation piece if I have my nails painted, but you know, like if it is, kind of be an affirming one. Like, hey, that right. looks really awesome. Like not a question of like, why'd you do that, right? That's different <laughs> than, hey, like I really love your nails, you know? Yeah. Or if I'm wearing earrings, I'm wearing earrings today. It's like, yeah. oh, like what's that about? You know, like it's little things like that or longer hairs. So, you know, all these little stereotypical things, but it goes, you know, those are surf more a little surface, but level, but they, they also have impact, right? Yeah, so, I've been carrying a purse for 35 years and mm-hmm. it's like, all right. I mean, and, you know, I've gotten all the comments over the years, you know, what's yeah. with the, the man bag and on and on yeah, and on. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, I just call it a purse because I carry a bunch of shit in it. I don't yeah. know. It's a, ba- it's a bag. Why, why does that have any significance? Wearing right. earrings. What, what significance is that? And right. It's what, I, we, it's what we put on it. I was, you know, so I'll say a guilty pleasure of mine is watching the, the Bachelor and the Bachelorette, actually, because I think it's fascinating TV. And if you want to understand psychology, <laughs> it's really interesting to me. Uh, reality TV is fascinating. But um, and I was just watching something the other day where uh, someone was talking about man tears, like a bunch like, oh, look at your man tears. And it's like, well, right. so we're 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 adding like what gender dynamics and stuff to tears right. and all sorts right. of stuff or seeing somebody order. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink caffeine. Um, and so, you know, I'll get a hot chocolate at a Starbucks or something. And yeah. You know, I'll have men or other, it could be peers or friends even over the years who've said something about that. Like, oh, you're getting a hot chocolate. And I asked for extra whipped cream and give me that like chocolate drizzle, give me all the stuff. Give me sprinkles on stuff. But it's like we've made we've made these arbitrary things that just bring joy. hot chocolate brings me joy, you know, like, but we've we've made it to where we're boxing people in around just everyday stuff. So that's where the anxiety and pressure comes from because you never know how someone's judging your masculinity or your identity like what is that who's living freely that way right and so let's ease that we don't need that we need people to reach more fuller potentials for themselves and at least live in joy um and and freedom right that's part of the liberation process i agree Said, is the is the new men uh course is that part of mars is that the vehicle for mars or is that separate yeah no i appreciate you bringing that up so no new men is a separate entity so it might be it might be uh 
connected in, in some loose ways, which I, I'll, I'll talk about in a second, but Newman is sort of its own separate thing. So Newman is a six-week curriculum that um, I'm a, uh, ma- I am manage, um, I co-manage it with a, uh, a colleague of mine at the university named uh, Rob Brown. And um, we have a, uh, a few of us are also facilitators of that. And so it's six weeks that goes through different parts of identity development around masculinity. So it might start with like intro to masculinity stuff. Like let's talk about masculine identity, maybe this man box I was sort of referring to earlier, you know, how does that identity develop? And then it sort of gets into different pieces of that, say like um, emotional intelligence and self-regulation, right? Or we might also talk about, um, you know, pop culture in media and masculine influence. Mm-hmm. So, and then it sort of leads into more of like the violence prevention. How does deconstructing masculinity really help us prevent violence? Um, and then it sort of ends with more like action items, commitments, and, um, you know, what can you do now? What can you actually apply this to? Because although I think doing masculinity work, quote unquote, like self-exploration, identity, development, I think that's all really great and important in the foundation of the work. I don't think it means as much if you're not doing anything with it, right? right. That are actually yeah. impacting the lives of others. So, yeah. um, because we have impact. So it's all its own separate thing. Um, but where Mars can come into play is that sometimes uh, uh, somebody will go through new men, the new men program with me and a facilitator in a cohort, usually keep it between eight and 12 to really enhance more intimacy um, in the space, increase vulnerability and connection, that sort of thing. Um, uh, they may go through that and then, aha, this really resonates with me. Maybe I could apply for Mars, you know, and join Mars. And so there's that connection because to be in Mars, you really need to have a certain baseline understanding of like, at least that you as a man or you as a masculine person has impact that you may not even realize like it has impact in various ways, understanding that there's some privilege to that, but also understanding that there's some detriments to that. And, and, and like, let's explore that. So if you don't have that baseline, it's hard to be in Mars because it's hard to catch you up a little bit, but we are very open. Like if you're just eager and really interested, we'll catch you up. You know, we just mm-hmm. want folks, you know, but yeah. um, new men is sometimes a good vehicle for that. Absolutely. Are you seeing uh demand for either Mars or new men um, change over time? Um, Like at the university or do you mean like more, more like uh, broader than that? I guess I mean well Mars goes expands or uh, extends outside of the university right but but in general do you are you I guess maybe not even like uh, from a data perspective but like mm-hmm. anecdotally do you are you seeing um, a heightened appetite for young men who want to do this kind of work? Yes, definitely so. Um, you know, at the university, I think because Mars, one of our you know, one of our goals has to, has become to be a little bit more visible. I think like, you know, there's in a ways a men's group or a masculinity based group can just take up a lot of space. You know, if you're just like going into it and just trying to, you know, but, you know, we want to also let people know that we exist and, and we're here and we're, you know, interested in folks wanting to join. And so, you know, we've seen a much more of an increase at the university of folks that are just interested in understanding masculinity from that perspective, knowing that Mars exists, knowing that new men is a thing where I've seen it a lot. Um, is with a more increase, especially post Me Too, you know, this uh, heightened understanding of harm and men who are causing harm, right? And so what I've seen is a a deeper interest in men who want to understand that, 
connection. Um, and for some male or masculine folks, and this is separate from Mars and, and new men, um, but there have been a, a more a plethora of, of young men who have come to me who have maybe um, caused harm and want to process that, mm-hmm. um, want to understand like where that came from for them, what work can be done around that, what does accountability look like? You know, so I think that there is a, a desire for it. Now, beyond Northwestern, I'm seeing that a lot of places and spaces where folks, again, like we talked about before, masculinity as a topic has, has been brought up a lot. And I think what we're seeing at the most is a sort of this diametrically opposed approach to it, where there is a big struggle is um, a real rigid way of understanding masculinity that's caught on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, A very, uh, one that's like very, like you think about things like uh, incels, proud boys, you think of Mm -hmm. things like um, a real rigid, like um, uh, right wing at time understanding of what this looks like um, that's a little bit more rooted in power and uh, a version that looks more like mine, right? (laughs) Or like what some of the work we might be doing. And what I'm seeing from a lot of young men and uh, young folks who are trying to navigate masculinity is like, well, what, what is, what is it, right? What is it for me? And if there is a message that feels more powerful to them, because it's sort of maybe at times preying on, but really trying to, to, to harp on like those stereotypes and rigidity we talked about before, if someone's trying to like really recruit you, um, through those means that it might make you feel more powerful, right? It might make you feel more powerful to go this route that's really rigid and restrictive. And what we're trying to say is like, that may feel powerful, but it's kind of a superficial power, you know, Um, because the real power isn't actually like connecting to others, um, uh, having a more positive impact on yourself, you know, not being so depressed and anxious. Maybe I can sell you on that, right? And so, um, but, you know, overall, I'm seeing a lot of interest in it from from younger folks. And not even just young folks, people across all ages, you know, yeah. who are really interested in understanding it more. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious to to get your perspective and Chris yours too on on because what occurs to me is as you were just talking, I'm thinking about okay, um, these models of masculinity that we're trying to talk to young men about is a model. It's an identity. It's it's to a certain extent, it might be a label that I'm going to put on myself. I'm masculine versus who am I? So, yeah. so how much of this is determining who I am as, as a human being mm-hmm. versus, oh, I'm masculine, I'm feminine, I'm this, I'm that. I mean, um, are we even putting too much emphasis on, on it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think that's a great question. The labels themselves are just to help, you know, it's kind of shorthand yeah. for folks, right? And, yeah. but, you know, what I encourage folks to, to, to sit with is, that, you know, if we're getting into more spiritual terms, like a divine masculine, a divine feminine, you know, it's it's all interrelated and we're all um, on a certain uh, trajectory with that. We're, we're, it's dimensional, right? It's like we're all in different places with it. And so we absolutely all have femininity to us, masculinity to us. And I think over time, who knows with these labels, it might just go away completely, right? Like, but it is, but what it is, is in the human, it is in the human business. Cause I think a lot of folks will ask me a lot about, well, what do men want, right? Like, how do we support men? How do, you know, all these things. And I'm like, well, love them, affirm them, you know, don't put them, I mean, like humans, right. like, right. and I think like, that's a big key is that a lot of our men and our, our folks that are in, invested in their masculinity, that piece of themselves, um, are learning to maybe deny 
these other parts of them, you know, of themselves and not allowing themselves to live fully for fully human. And so, um, yeah, I think labels are what they are and they can be helpful. But overall, what we're really talking about is like, who am I? And can I just live a more free life and help others live that way too, you know, through personal interaction policy, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just starts, I mean, the socialization process of it all starts so early. Right. And I feel like, um, just because, you know, I actually, I'll, I'll talk about this in a second, but like, just because, you know, maybe you were, uh, born with a penis doesn't have to mean something about you for the rest of your life. Yeah, you know, it just yeah. doesn't, what does that mean? Right. Um, and so, um, an exercise I was doing the other day, it was just for fun. I, I can be a real nostalgic kick. Um, but I was watching old, nineties uh, toy commercials, you know, um, the, the toys I grew up with, um, yeah. recently, and unbelievable, like when you really look back at it, these toys for boys, like what's encouraged for them, like, you know, fast cars and, uh, you know, they're going to be, uh, you know, fighting and fighters and all this sure. other stuff. And for all the girls, it was like dolls, right? It was all about like being a mom. So I'm watching this three-year-old take care of a doll baby who can spit up and can pee and all sorts of stuff. You're like, what is, this is a, a, a baby, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, you know, being taught this early that this is like, this is the toy for them. And if that's what you want to do again, we're not getting into like, Hey, rigidity mm-hmm. around femininity either. If that's what you want, that's great. But just how we're instilling that so early. And so I, I, I see that a lot with folks is that um, it's just so universal and even across culture, a lot of cultures as well. It's just this idea that um, if I was born into this, uh, born with these specific body parts, this is what it is for me. And I think what's been really great about recent years is like folks being a little bit more fluid with that. And I think I and I get it, the fluidity of understanding that it can be really scary for folks and can be really discombobulating for folks. That's the word, Um, you know, it could disorienting. It could be a lot for folks because you might know a certain thing for your whole life. And now folks are being more flexible with it. And I think that that's what we're really trying to get across too, is like, it's okay to embrace some of that flexibility. It doesn't have to mean anything. We're just trying to help people live more freely, you know, and, and live happier lives. Yeah. So, so I have a, um, You've done a lot, you do you continue to do a lot of work in sex education and 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 you did that prior to you arriving in Northwestern and I'm and I'm curious. Um, I read an art. It was a it was an opinion piece in the Times back in May and actually Deborah Turkma, Turkheimer who works Deborah at Northwestern yeah mm-hmm. she was she was a co-author of the piece and it and it got into the issue of. Um, I think there the uh, there were some penal codes that were looking at the potential of um, silence is consent, if you will. And, and, and then she gets into this whole thing about, you know, how, how can that even, how can that be the law these days? And there has to be some affirmative consent, if you will. And I'm curious about what you see in the kids. This is all about communication. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I think we suck at communication. So, mm-hmm. so I'm just curious, is that me as an older guy that sucks at communication and are the younger <laughs> people getting better at it so that, so that it's all about community. I mean, it's not all about communication, but so much of the expectation is on quality communication. Mm-hmm. How do we fit? How do I, if, if I'm right in that we suck at it, how do we get, how do we, how do we get better? I mean, how do we get better at that? Yeah. You know, well, I'll say first it's, it's not necessarily just by age. I think the, the, the students I, that come in contact to who were born in like what 2002 or whatever, you know, at this point, um, 
they also struggle with the communication part of it, yeah. right? Like everyone struggles, yeah. I think, with the communication around sex. And I think that goes back to a lot of like institutional values we have around like sex and purity and all sorts of stuff, right? Like people grow up not knowing how to talk about it um, or ignoring it or, um, you know, trying to control it in such a way that's like really restrictive again, right? Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, we learn from an early age things about like how to say no, right? We, we learn a lot about uh, bad touch and say no and stranger danger and all these things. But how many times were you taught as a kid, like about pleasure, right? Or like how to accept pleasure or how to like communicate to someone that you do want to be touched, right? If you're taught your whole life that like how to say no your whole life and you're never taught how to say yes, I mean, or that, or how to tell that you want to say yes, like, where does that leave you with the communication piece? And so what we really try to do uh, with our students is that it is absolutely about communication. And yeah, the silence as consent thing is wild. It really is because it is about checking in with folks, right? So what we'll teach our students is about half the work, a lot of the work happens even before you get into a sexual encounter, right? It has to do with mm-hmm. expectations. So your socialization around gender and gender roles and norms around sex is going to absolutely influence how you're accepting or receiving communication in the moment, right? So mm-hmm. part of it is early consent education. Um, so an example is I have a um, you know, a friend who has a, a son who, you know, we would w- watch TV show together. One time we were, you know, sitting around watching TV. And I think in the show, th- there's a boy and a girl and the boy just kisses the girl randomly, right? Um, just out of nowhere. And they kind of have an awkward look at each other and then they kind of like run off. And I asked, you know, my my friend's kid, like, what do you, what do you think about that? You know, what do you think about what happened there? And he's like, oh, kissing girls is gross, right? And I was like, all right, you know, he's like, what, nine, he's like eight, nine years old. I was like, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I hear you. You know, maybe you don't want to do that. But like, what do you think about like the kiss? Like, do you think like, did it look like she wanted that? Right? And he's like, no, I don't think so. I was like, well, how did you know? And he's like, well, she didn't really ask, you know, she didn't really like indicate, you know, like, you know, he's not using the word indicate necessarily, but you know what I mean, right? You know, uh, and so it's like these little, there's teachable moments going on that are really age appropriate that you could be starting really early to help manage those expectations, right? When I was doing sex ed, you know, a lot of the boys were saying to me, you know, these are like 14 year old boys, 13 year old boys saying like, uh, if, if a girl, you know, if we're using the binary here, you know, if a girl, uh, accepts, you know, a date to go to dinner, then that's consent for sex. And you're like, where's that coming from? Right. But you have that message and then you break it down for them. Well, what did she consent to? Mm-hmm. she consented to paying me paying for dinner right mm-hmm. like where's the sex part where did that come into play so mm-hmm. all these things that we're, we're working with so we're just trying to find these teachable moments and even if you're not a kid anymore and you're older it is around like the communication can you just check in with each other right yeah. like um and not feel so much shame about it there's so much shame and stigma attached to sex and i think that's where we're getting into a lot of problem areas yeah. for sure yeah, I mean, even even the young kid, the eight, nine year old kid, kid is, hey, kissing a girl is gross. How about not really? Yeah, let's like talk about it. I was like, yeah, really? that's where you're at. I'm yeah. like, if that's where you're at, cool. You know, like that could be where you're at, you know, but like we can talk about that. Like yeah. what makes it gross? Like it, it, it's an invitation. You know, there's some right. conversations that have there and, and not to to just like, you know, 
I don't know, you know, really restrict them in that or um, try to shame them in that. And so, yeah, when it comes again, when it comes to the communication piece, I think it is really just like, can we, um, you know, can consent at least be clear, you know, and if someone is silent or someone is frozen or someone feels anxious, you could tell check in what's preventing you from checking in but then it's the rigid expectations around i maybe need to have sex right now or i have to have sex right now so i'm gonna bypass all of this stuff and then if you get things like substances involved and stuff it even doubles down on that right and so can we address some of those expectations around gender roles and norms earlier and throughout your life and how that's impacting your you know your communication for sure yeah. I'm going to ask the the data nerd question. Say, um, th- does your does your group at Northwestern in any way tie sort of your performance metrics to campus statistics around things like rape? Yeah, can you can you expand on that a little bit? In what ways are you thinking? Yeah, like the more kids you reach, is the hope that the impact of your work will be for those numbers to go down. Oh yeah, absolutely. That is the, that is the hope. And in the, you know, so uh, because it is really is about helping influence campus culture around this, right? So it's not enough for my students to be doing it with these other students. And that's what it is. It's about the building community understanding around this, right? Community care, right? For um, survivors and beyond survivors, just like community care and understanding around um, sex and sexuality, um, power, control, things like that, right? And, and sexual violence specifically. So yeah, like we we look at those things. We also are really invested, you know, because sometimes even if you have all the prevention efforts in the world, sometimes like uh, violence is still occurring, right? And so what we might also look at then is, well, how are, are they accessing services? Do they know that our services exist, you know, and right, what our right. services do? So we start that out earlier, you know, I was talking earlier about like our orientation week is coming up in a couple of weeks. And that's my job is to help manage the first touch point that incoming students have with our department um, by providing them, you know, information about our department and what we do and how it connects to other departments as well. You know, so again, uh, comprehensive community understanding around it. I also help co-manage the bystander intervention program here too. And we approach that in a way that's very identity-based. Let's talk about, you know, people say like, be an active bystander. Well, what does that mean? And how does your identity maybe influence what you do or do not notice needs to be, needs intervention, right? Like I may, you know, as a man, not notice something that's really like sexist going on and may not even realize it's a moment of bystander intervention potentially, right? So I maybe I need to do some more work so I can notice those things, right? We're missing a lot of things. We're trying to make that a community initiative too, right? Like let's build community around that as well and look at the numbers of like interventions, like how people are uh, approaching being active bystanders, things like that. So yeah, we'll definitely look at that and see how we're influencing that for sure. So, so Chris asked three questions at the end and, and before he asks his three questions, I just want to say that uh, I just want to bring attention to the fact that you mentioned um, that you do consulting work. Mm-hmm. So if any of the listeners are, are, are interested in engaging you in, in any kind of uh, work along these lines, they can find your information in the show notes or they can contact me um, as well. So For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I will. We have three sort of canned questions that are sort of like the common denominator, the common thread that runs through each of our episodes. Hmm. Um, and uh, 
So don't overthink these. That's the <laughs> okay. only requirement. Are these uh, one word answers we're looking for? Are these no, no, you no, can, no, you no, can, no. You 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 just you speak from your gut, and you'll see what I mean with this first one. The first question okay. is, what do you wish you could have told your ten year old self? Ah, oh, that's a great question. What do I wish um, I could tell my ten year old self? Um, probably that you're enough. Probably, you know, I think at 10, I was constantly trying to, that was when I was in Georgia now for the first time, I was trying to impress people who are very different than me, trying to fit in. Um, and I think a struggle of mine even now is like, I've developed the personality I have, right? And I'm really happy with who I am, but how much of who I am now has been influenced by just being, uh, feeling really isolated, right? And feeling mm -hmm. like I need to maybe overcompensate and start to talk to people and stuff. So I would love to just like affirm my 10 year old self and just tell them that you're loved and you're enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought about as you were telling us about your move as a kid to Atlanta, I thought about that question. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. so it's going to have uh, this is going to going to, you know, uh, strike a chord. Yeah. Uh, the next question is, uh, do you have a mantra in life or a mantra these days? A mantra in life or a mantra these days? Um, That's a great question. There's several that I think go along in my head. Um. Uh, I think uh, one that I, I tell a lot of my students now is that especially a lot of our perfectionist students here in Northwest, you know, progress is not linear. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I use the example of uh, uh, checkpoints or save points in video games. Right. Like, you know, you learn a lot of skills, you get to a checkpoint and then you fight a boss and maybe that boss is too big, too strong, <laughs> whatever it is, and you lose. But you don't lose all that information, right? Like you start back at that checkpoint again. You don't have to start all over. Um, and then you learn those skills. Now you're getting better. And now you know how to attack it next time, you know, and, and it's all about learning. And so, you know, there's going to be steps back. There's going to be that. But and that's part of the process. So just being comfortable mm -hmm. with uh, the progress doesn't have to be linear. Progress certainly hasn't been linear to me. I mean, I've had many failures in my life that have contributed to just like who I am now, you know, and uh, have made me better for it. So but yeah, progress is not linear for sure. I love that. That's the first video game reference I think we've heard for that mantra <laughs> nice. question. Uh, last question: What do you hope? Uh, this uh, this is kind of where maybe it might feel a little bit heavier. Uh, what do you hope that people uh, will say about you at your wake? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me emotional. I really love that. I love that question. Um. I think I, I guess I wish I, I hope that people will say that um, I made them smile, I made them laugh um, and that I maybe help them that I was somebody that was always invested in just who they were as people, you know, um, I absolutely like any kind of like conversations I have with people, I want to learn about people. And so I talk too much. I mean, I used to get in trouble in school all the time for talking <laughs> so much. Um, my parents used to say, what are you going to do with your life where you talk to people full time? Well, hey, mom and dad, look at, look what's going on. I'm on a podcast now. <laughs> look what's going on, right? Um, <laughs> podcasts exist, by the way, mom and dad in, in 89 or 90, right? Um, but yeah, like I just like that I made them smile, made them laugh and I made them feel connected, you know, and then I connected with them. Um, I made them feel like love and noticed, you know, like I think um, that would be really powerful uh, for, for me to know that 
people felt noticed by me um, and felt accepted by me. You know, I would I would love knowing that. Yeah, there's probably a number of things, but I, I I'll I'll keep it there for now. That's for sure. a pretty good one. He made people feel noticed. I made yeah. me feel noticed. That's really great. Well, it's a it's a bummer that I have to hop. It just so happens tonight things are hectic around here. Uh, B, I I I I know our paths are going to cross again because of the nature uh-huh. of our work and the nature of our men's group. Um, mm-hmm. maybe count for count on round, that for sure, yeah, right? For sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. This has um, been great. Yeah, and and the last thing I'll say say it is like the like sort of we, our understanding of why we do this podcast has sort of evolved a little bit, right, Sean? I mean, it's like in the end, it's like we're, we're we just hope to talk to people who are who are sort of like figuring out how to leave this place a little better than they found it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, man, I I I think you're doing that uh, as we speak. No so appreciate no you. doubt. I really appreciate yeah. that, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to y'all and. And appreciate the conversation. Yeah, this is great work that y'all are doing. So I'm, I'm happy to do it for sure. Um, thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org. <laughs>